today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. here in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, this second Adam enters in. And as he comes here, this second Adam, Jesus Christ, wins the battle against the enemy of our souls. You need to understand that when we think of what's going on in those days, when it comes to the cross, the cross is not the battle zone. The cross was the point of death, the physical death of Christ. But the actual battle zone was fought and won long before the cross. It was fought there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The very name of the Garden, Gethsemane, means the olive press. We can't diminish the extreme agony Jesus experienced as he surrendered himself to the will of God, resulting in his death on the cross. As a man, he was submitting himself to unspeakable pain and physical agony. But as David explains in today's message, the cross was a relatively small part of the overall battle that Christ was embroiled in. In order to impart his own righteousness on mankind, he had to bear the collective guilt of all of our sin, destroying his intimacy with the Father. Now here's Pastor David with today's message entitled, Victory Over the Powers of Darkness. in the book of Luke. We are in chapter 22. We've been there for a while. We've actually covered the time there in the upper room the night before the betrayal of Christ for a number of weeks now. We are finally tonight going to get out of the upper room and we're going to be entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now you have to understand there was a lot of pressure, a lot of things that were going on that night there in the upper room, the sharing of the feast meal together, the symbolism of that Passover sacrifice, again, being declared as Jesus himself being that, that bread and that wine, the giving of his body and of his blood, the questions and the doubts that the disciples had. First they asked, well, who is it among us that's going to betray you? And then almost immediately the conversation changes and says, which one of us is greatest? So again, all of these things, all of these dynamics that were going on. It was the time of the final decision for Judas. Up until that time, Judas had an out. He could have chosen another way. The Lord always gives us another way. Again, no temptation has taken you, but there is common demand, but God will provide a way of escape. And Judas had a way of escape, but he didn't take it that night. He went on out and he betrayed the master. And let's not forget the prayers of G Jesus that night. Luke doesn't show them, but we covered those a little bit in uh, the gospel according to John last week. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for you and I because he prayed for the believers that were going to believe according to the word of the disciples. And that comes right down to you and I. All of this was a beginning of the preparation of what was yet to take place. An evening and the remainder of the next day were just going to be continually more and more intense and powerful. 
as it led to the cross. And all of this was shadowed by the disciples being totally clueless of really what's taken place. And they remain clueless all the way to the point of the resurrection. When Jesus finished the meal, finished the teaching time, finished the prayers with the disciples there in the upper room, Matthew's gospel record tells us that they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that hymn or that song which they sang was probably most likely uh, almost guaranteed it was from what is called the Hallel, the uh, uh, Psalms 113 through 118. How many of those they sang during that evening, we don't know, but that last one that they would have sang would have been Psalm 118. And right in the middle of this, you need to imagine the heart and the mind of Christ as the worship leader for that group of men singing these songs, singing these psalms. Keep your place in Luke 22. Turn real quickly over to Psalm 118. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want you to go down uh, to verse 22. And listen to the words here and think of the mind and the heart of Jesus as he's singing these songs with these men and leading these men in this psalm of praise. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, verse 22 tells us. Speaking of Christ himself, verse 23 This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Do you understand? This is the day that he's betrayed. This is the day he's going on trial. This is the day he's going to be crucified. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You and I can rejoice and be glad in it because that was the day that our salvation was purchased. Can you imagine Jesus singing these songs? Verse 27, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Who is the sacrifice church? But the worship leader himself, Christ himself, as he's leading the disciples in this psalm. He cries out in verse 28, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. You need to realize that for years the Jews had sung these songs. And in particular during the time of Passover, these last few, uh, Psalm 116, 117, and 118 here, they sang the songs. It all related to the sacrifice that was going to be given there during Passover. And the Jews understood these psalms related to God and to the sacrifice that was going to be given on Passover for their sins. They knew that. They understood that. These are the very psalms that were sang on that day of the triumphant entry, that on that day, even the day that Christ came into Jerusalem, that's the same day that the Passover lamb is brought from the fields on into the city of Jerusalem to stay there at the temple, to be under observation for four days, to make sure that he's a spotless lamb. And these are the psalms that the people sang. They knew these psalms were for the sacrifice and now Jesus with full understanding of that leading these disciples who had no understanding of the reality and the truth and the fulfillment of these things okay let's get back over to Luke 22 with that bit of a background in Luke 22 we'll pick up where we left off last week we're now in verse 39 Luke 22 verse 39 and he Jesus came out and and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. 
When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 tells us that they left the upper room and they were headed to the Mount of Olives. In order to get to the Mount of Olives, they would have had to go down into the valley of the Brook Kidron and then back up as they ascended that western slopes of the Mount of Olives, able to look back and see the city of Jerusalem there. There on the Mount of Olives was a private garden called Gethsemane. Familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. Our understanding is whenever he was down in Jerusalem, he would never spend the night in Jerusalem, but he would spend the night most often just on the hillside, sleeping outside under the stars there on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, most likely there in the area of Gethsemane, an area where they could, again, have that quiet time, an area where they could see actually through the trees, see the city of Jerusalem, most likely see the temple itself. And so Jesus took the remaining 11 disciples. Remember, Judas had already gone out. Judas had already gone to be with the Pharisees and the chief priests in order to turn Jesus over to, again, these scribes and to the temple police. So Judas is no longer there. So now Jesus, with the other 11 disciples, up into the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. As they walked around that area, how peaceful it had to probably be during that time. Now, it's not peaceful today. If you've been with us uh, on an Israel tour, you realize, man, it's just busy, it's chaos. There's traffic all around you, there's people all around you. But take yourself back 2,000 years to the quietness of that time. Matthew and Mark in their gospel record tells us that Jesus left most of the disciples there, but took with him Peter, James, and John and walked a little bit further away from the others. And then leaving Peter, James, and John, verse 41 of Luke's gospel record tells us, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I spoke with you earlier that there was a battle in that first garden, in the Garden of Eden. Oh, beloved, here is a time of battle. And Jesus is now in the heart of the battle zone. And that battle zone is the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. That battle that was fought long ago, that battle in the Garden of Eden, we know that Adam lost that battle. And because he lost that battle, We understand that sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. But now here in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, this second Adam enters in. And as he comes here, this second Adam, Jesus Christ, wins the battle against the enemy of our souls. You need to understand that when we think of what's going on in those days, when it comes to the cross, the cross is not the battle zone. The cross was the point of death, the physical death of Christ. But the actual battle zone was fought and won long before the cross. It was fought there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The very name of the Garden, Gethsemane, means the olive press. And what a descriptive name of all that was going on within the heart and the mind of Christ. Let's set the apostles aside for a moment and just think about the battle that was raging within the heart and the mind, the soul of Christ. Now, beloved, do not lessen the reality that Jesus was human. Oh, he was God. He was, and like I'd like to share, he's 100% God and he was 100% human. That doesn't work in our math, but it works perfectly in God's math, okay? And in his humanity, the stress, the agony, 
anxiety, all of that working upon him during this time. As a matter of fact, we could go to Matthew and Mark's account, and each one of those writers tells us that Jesus was sorrowful. He was troubled. He was deeply distressed. And before he moved on to his own private location to pray, still with Peter and James and John, Mark tells us that he shared with those three, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He wanted them to stay. He wanted them to pray, pray for their own strength, but also pray for the strength he needed to meet this final battle head on. He knew that the battle was raging at that point. And Jesus walked into that battle knowing full well the struggle that he was going to face. There in the garden, he met the enemy head on in that confrontation. He met the enemy, but beloved, we know he also defeated the enemy. Amen? He defeated the enemy there, and the way that he did it was again through the obedience to the Father. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, he declares, therefore, as through one man's offense, that's the fall of Adam he's speaking of, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous acts, that's speaking of the second Adam, that's speaking of the obedience of Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. We need to fully understand that obedience didn't come easily. We, we think, yeah, well, he, he's God in, in human flesh, so certainly he's going to do the will of the Father. No, you, you're, you're lessening the humanity of Christ if you go to that point that easy. You need to understand the greatness of the battle. This obedience was found in the midst of extreme stress and extreme trial that was going on in his life. Back in Luke here, Luke gives us the clearest picture of, of, the, uh, 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 of, of the amount of stress and the agony that he was experiencing. Look, Luke 22, verse 43. And there appeared to him, to Jesus, an angel from heaven strengthening him. The battle was so great that the father sent a ministering angel to come and stand beside his son to be an encouragement, to be a, a, a booster of, again, man, this, this, this is right. This is what needs to be done, knowing that the Father is looking out and caring for him. But look what he says beyond that in verse 44. Being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. You need to understand, even though we read that his prayer is, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You need to realize that the prayer that he was praying wasn't for a release. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. I believe that his prayer, more than anything, was that complete and total surrender to the father's will. That's where it was, knowing all that was before him. The intensity of that hour had to take such a toll on Jesus emotionally and physically. And yet, beloved, do you realize that in the midst of the weakness of his flesh and of his emotions, his spirit was strengthened during that time. Why? 
because of that prayer of obedience that said, not my will, but your will be done. And beloved, let me encourage you on this. Every time you and I pray that prayer, regardless of what we're going through, regardless of the battles that we're fighting, regardless of the stress and the trials and the anxiety that we're suffering at that point in time, whether it be physical, financial, emotional, relational, whatever the battle might be, when we come to that point of the prayer that says, not my will, but your will be done, and that's the very core and the heart of our prayer, beloved, the battle is won at that point. We become victorious at that point when we surrender ourselves into the hand and into the care of a loving God who knows our frame, who knows our situations greater than we know them. We become victorious that even though we may go through the fire, we will not get burned. Though we go through the flood, we will not be drowned. Though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that he's there with us and his rod and his staff is going to comfort us. Not my will, but yours be done. The intensity is captured by Luke as he writes to us and says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Actually, it's a rare, it's, it's very rare, but it is a physical phenomenon known as hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. And that's where, again, the, the capillaries uh, uh, begin to, to break down and, and the, the blood is, is mixed with the sweat at that time. And it would appear that that's the very case because of the greatness of the agony that Jesus was experiencing at that point in time. You need to realize, though, his struggle wasn't in doing the Father's will over his own, even. I believe a por the, the great portion of that struggle, not just to do the Father's will, he had done that all of his life. He was, he was sent to do the Father's will, and he prayed, Father, I've done your will, I continue to do your will. I look here at the the struggle was the knowledge of the sin of the world that was going to be placed upon him who knew no sin. Recognizing that with, again, the, the sinfulness and the blackness of humanity upon him, that there was going to come a time very shortly that there was going to be a breaking of the fellowship that he had had for all eternity past with the Father. Why? Because the Word of God tells us that God is holy. He can't even look upon sin. And most speculate, and I believe correctly, that there was that point in time there as Jesus hung on the cross that the sin of the world was upon his shoulder and the sin was so black, so dark, so vile, that the Father literally had to turn his back on the Son until that payment was made complete. That's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he's hanging on a cross. That was a part of the thing. That was the direction he was going. From the time of his birth, he was headed to the cross. But the reality of the brokenness of that fellowship that was there for all eternity. You and I, we, we live in the midst of sin. We, we, we often find ourselves in sin. Amen? Okay, a few of us do anyway. Uh, <laughs> we, we do, it's, it's, it's hard for us to understand, really in a complete way, all that's going on here. Now we can agree with it, but we can never fully know the extent of the impact of the sin of the world being placed upon that spotless Lamb of God. That holy, spotless Lamb of God. 
when we read how as he prayed, as the angel ministered to him, we also find out that the apostles, they, they were asleep. It's been a long evening. We understand that. We know, we know that, they, again, the, the daylight hours, were, they, they, they were fast approaching. They'd been there in the upper room all evening. The, Jesus had ministered to them for how long had he prayed? And one of the gospel writers said, for, can't you keep watch for an hour? And that was the first time. And again, through the combination of the gospel records, we find out that he went and he prayed three different times. And each time he came back and found the apostles sleeping. And Luke tells us there in verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? And again, uh, I believe that this was probably that third time, that, that last time that he came. And on that time, Luke tells us, verse 47, while he was speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You understand that that kiss was supposed to be a kiss of peace, a, a sign of friendship. But here Judas changed all that around and instead of a kiss of peace, it became the kiss of death as he came up to Christ on that day. Immediately, Judas went up to Jesus, cries out, Rabbi, Rabbi, or greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him, giving direct, again, identification of who Jesus was to this crowd as if they didn't know who he was already. Personally, I feel it's more than just a recognition of Jesus. I think that it was that final seal of the deal in, in Judas's betrayal. He didn't stand back and say, oh, I had changed my mind, but they kept going. No, Judas was right there to the very bitter end, embracing Christ, kissing him while the mob was there to arrest him. No, he was in it all the way. Verse 49 says, then those around him saw what was going to happen. The disciples, suddenly, they saw what was going to happen, and they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So at this point, even as the disciples, they were still wiping the sleep from their eyes, I believe. They, they sprang into action, and remember, more often than not, the action of the disciples, and in particular, Peter, was ready, fire, aim. You know, so it's like, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something. And that's exactly what took place. Lord, should we strike with the sword? And rather than wait for the Lord's response to that question, the word tells us in verse 50 there that one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know from the other gospel accounts that was Peter. We understand that that servant's name was Malchus, the servant of the high priest cut off his right ear, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this. It was, the guy's ear's been cut off. Jesus says, stop. Picks the guy's ear up. He touched his ear. He healed him. I read that, and I think personal note to self, okay? Pay attention here. Whenever you preempt the answer from God, you can pretty well be guaranteed you're going to be wrong.
Learning more about Jesus is the single most important thing we can do as Christians. As we carefully consider how Jesus lived, we see beautiful examples that can apply to our lives. Though the entire Bible is rich with symbols and images that point to Jesus, the Gospels are grand central station for who Jesus is. Join us each day as Pastor David teaches through the Gospel of Luke. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to theopenword.com. That's theopenword.com. Although the open word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the Word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. Here's Tracy with more information about our service times here at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Maybe you're listening right now in Casa Grande and you don't have a home church. We want to take this time to invite you to join us for worship. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. at 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday and Saturday. For more information, call us at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Or log on to theopenword.com and follow the link to the church website. Thanks, Tracy. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Please join us next time for the next edition of The Open Word. from we-